Well, I don't know about you, but as someone who has been washed white as snow because of the blood of Jesus, I am overwhelmed this morning at that reality. Part of that reality is knowing the depth at which Jesus has rescued me from and the grace that he has for the continued blessings as if salvation and eternal life isn't enough, he continues to bless. Today we have a passage in 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14 that we will be faced with the reality of sin, the disgusting nature of sin. You may have received an email this week if you were on our Calvary email list that we are not going to avoid this particular passage just because the sin that is addressed in this passage is horrific. It's violent. We are not going to shy away from some of the terminology of what this sin is because if we don't call sin, sin by its actual terminology, then we may not understand how horrible sin is. Today's sermon is called The Path of Sin, The Power of Jesus. And I want to start not in 2 Samuel, but in Romans chapter 3 with a very familiar passage. And the very beginning of what I want to say to you is a reminder from Scripture that all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want you to realize that when it uses the word all, it means all. All have sinned. And it's not just actions of sin, because if it was only discussing or talking about our actions, then we could just act rightly and then we wouldn't be sinners. But that's not the case. The very nature of mankind is sinful. And so we are sinful. And from our sinful nature, sinful actions are produced. You see, Adam, the very first human, sinned, and thus he passed down sin to each descendant, which we are all descendants. And so all have sinned by their very nature, mankind is sinful. And then the verse continues, and it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that all is attached to everyone falls short. And so again, all means all. Everybody ever born of man and woman has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no action that we can do to measure up to God or clean up before God. And as we saw in Psalm 51.4 last week, all sin is against God. It may involve others, but it starts as a sin against God. David said this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so this means that if we were to be guilty of the smallest sin, as we might categorize small and big sins, it doesn't mean we are closer to God in our sin nature than someone who is guilty of the greatest sin because all fall short. And so everybody needs a savior. Everybody needs a savior to the same degree in the same measure. We are either separated from God due to sin or we are children of God because of Jesus. It's not steps that you climb up to reach God based on your degree of sin and your improved actions. It's either an enemy of God or a child of God. And the reason I start here is because if we don't have the proper understanding of this, then today's scripture won't be understood. 
Because what we would do is we would either compare ourselves to the sin that we're going to see today, and we're going to naturally think very highly of ourselves which would then minimize our need for a savior. It would mean that Jesus didn't die as much for me because I was a cleaner sinner than somebody else, maybe the person that we see in scripture today. Or we would see our sin and think, there's no hope for me because I'm too far gone. Maybe we read today's passage and we relate to the horrific sin that we see and we go, there's no hope for me. I have sinned too much. But we need to understand that all of us are sinners and need a savior to the same degree. And so we would ask ourselves, is there hope? And if there is hope, where is that hope found? As a teaser to the end of the sermon, I'll tell you that the hope is in the ultimate king, Jesus. You see, the best person is still separated from God, and the worst person is still not too far away from Jesus for him to save you. And we're going to come back to this hope later, but let's dive into 2 Samuel, and let's be reminded of where we are in Scripture. You see, last week we saw David had just committed adultery and murder. He was then confronted by Nathan and told that his sin has consequences. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so we see that the, there are immediate consequences of David's sin. We see, if we were to read chapter 12, three things. Nathan tells David, the sword shall never depart from your, ho- your house. There will always be turmoil. There will, there will always be war. There will always be consequences of sin that you feel. He also tells him that you're going to experience the pain of your spouse spouse being unfaithful. The same sin that you committed, you're going to feel and experience that yourself. And then third, the child that was conceived in this sinful relationship of David and Bathsheba, that child is not going to live. And so we see in chapter 12 the death of that child. But then we see that there's repentance and there's restoration in the relationship between David and God and David and Bathsheba. And we see that Solomon is now born in this redeemed relationship between David and Bathsheba. And what we see on display here is that sin has consequences. God puts on display some very obvious consequences so that we can see that sin is evil. That sin produces sin. Sin doesn't build up, it destroys. But we also see God's redemption because we see reunification between David and Bathsheba and God. We see Solomon being born, a blessing, a gift to this relationship. But we see two things that we need to understand. We aren't in charge of judgment or redemption, God is. And we also sometimes see that consequences aren't evident, but they aren't absent. There are always consequences for sin, whether we see them or not. So again, they may not be evident to us, but they are never absent because sin always destroys. And I believe that that has to be our starting point of understanding because what we're about to dive into in chapters 13 and 14 is the horrors of sin. I'm calling it the dark path of sin as point number one. You see, what happens here is we're introduced to some of David's children, Absalom, Tamar, Amnon. They're half-siblings, 
as David is the father, but there's many different mothers because you remember that David has chosen to follow culture and societal norms according to marriage instead of God. And so he's taken many wives, which produces a blended family of sorts, and there are many half-siblings. But what we see on this dark path of sin is that when you have temptation left unchecked, it leads to sin. We've all been tempted. Jesus was tempted. But when we leave it unchecked and we don't immediately turn to Jesus for strength and power to overcome, we leave it unchecked. It produces sin. And what we see right away in verse 2 is that this sin or this temptation left unchecked leads to sin. Because it says Amnon was so tormented by the beauty of his sister Tamar that he is even calling it love. It says, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. This term love here actually has a very wide variety of meanings. It can mean God's love, but it can also mean, in this context, to flirt or to endear, or it's associated with a lover, but not in a healthy way, a tempting, undesirable type way. And what we see is that they're calling it here love. Amnon says, I love her. What should have been so easily dismissed as inappropriate and disgusting, he left unchecked, and now he can't resist his own sister. You see what happens with sin and temptation that is left unchecked. After a time, it says, that means he's dwelt on this feeling. He has looked at her beauty and not appreciated just the natural beauty of God's creation. He has let it go further and further down the path, the dark path of sin. And this temptation has turned into sin and evil. He was dwelling on it. He was obsessing over it. We all recognize beauty. We all see that God is beautiful and his creation reflects him. And so there is beauty all around us, but we have to recognize it through God's eyes, not our sinful ways. And what we see is that Amnon is looking through his own eyes instead of the beauty that God placed there. And in verse two, it says, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister. Some of you may have just gotten ill in reading this verse, and it should make you ill. But he is so tormented with beauty that he is making himself ill because of his sister. He lets his mind wander. The beauty torments her, him. Do you see what's happened? This recognition of beauty leads to a dwelling thought, which leads to tormenting himself over his sister. And all of this is his fault. He made himself ill, it says in Scripture. It's gone from temptation to desires of incest that are so strong that it's made him sick. And verse four even describes how his obsession has affected his looks. Jonadab, his friend and his cousin, asks him, why are you so haggard morning after morning? You see, this sin is obvious to other people. It's affected how he looks, how he acts, and other people are recognizing it. But in verse 4, we also see that he is further convinced that it's love because he uses that word again. So sin, temptation left unchecked, leads to sin. And on this dark path of sin, the next step in that is that sin convinces us that it's okay. 
You see, he had let his mind become so obsessed that now he's claiming love, but he is still separating himself from the reality. Notice verse four when he says, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He didn't say my sister like he did in later verses. He kept the reality of that relationship at a distance so he could stomach that his thoughts and what he wanted to do to her. Because he says, it's not my sister, it's my brother Absalom's sister. Like, that's okay. Because sin convinces us it's okay. If I just change the wording a little bit, I can feel more comfortable about my sin. And that's exactly what sin wants you to do. It convinces you that it's okay. He was embracing sin. He was creating a lie and he was going to sell that lie to his dad so that she would come close to him. We're going to see that in a moment. So Jonadab notices that he's being tortured by something. Jonadab is described as a very crafty man. And if you read the story, you'll see that he didn't even hesitate with this sin. Jonadab has been pulled down the path of sin so far that his very first reaction to hearing that Amnon has this sexual incestual lust for his sister is not to pull him out of the sin, but to help him into it. That's what sin does. So not only is Amnon being convinced that everything is fine, Jonadab is already there saying, this is fine, I'm going to help you into this problem. Look at verse 5. Right after the confession of Amnon to Jonadab, he says this, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I need my sister to come and make me feel better with bread and food. And so let her come into my house and prepare food for me. Sounds like a great request. If there was a kid who went to their dad and said, I need my sister because I can't make my own food. I'm feeling sick. Sounds normal, right? But we know that this is evil. It's not a request of a loving brother. This is not a request of someone who just needs someone to help them out. This is an evil intent. The intent is disgusting. And both Amnon and Jonadab are convinced that this is okay, so they proceed with the plan. The plan is found in verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to read them in their entirety, but I'll summarize them. David thinks that this is a fine plan, and so he sends Tamar to Amnon to help him because he's sick. So Tamar comes to care for Amnon, who's pretending to be ill. You remember that earlier in this passage, it said that he made himself ill, but now it says he's pretending to be ill because I believe he is so excited about this plan coming to fruition that he is invigorated. You know that when there's anticipation for something, you get this energy that you're excited. And even if you were tired before, you're excited now. So he made himself ill, but now he's having to pretend to be ill to sell his plan. He's ill with lust and desire. But he has to fake illness because he's being invigorated with this passion about what's about to come because sin has convinced him that this is good. So here she is and she makes food for him. She thinks he's ill and I'm helping him. But the whole time he is sitting and waiting and watching her. And at any moment he could come to his senses and simply see his sister 
And what a beautiful heart that she has to serve him, to help him, to care for him like family does. And at any moment, he could look at her and just go, wow, this is a beautiful family that God has given us. But he doesn't. He looks at his sister in a horrible way. And eventually, her being in the other room preparing food isn't good enough. And so he invites her into his bedroom. And he says to her, come lie with me, my sister. He doesn't say anymore, come lie with me, my brother Absalom's sister, because sin has convinced him that this reality is okay, and so now he's even able to call it what it is, and he says, my sister. He's comfortable with this level of sin. He's comfortable with how far gone he is because sin has grabbed a hold of him, and it's trapped him. And what starts as him inviting her the invitation doesn't work, but Absalom doesn't stir, Amnon doesn't stop. Because when we're trapped in sin and we're convinced that, it okay, that it's okay, the circumstance can change, but we are still attached to the result and we will pursue the result no matter what it takes. And so the invitation didn't work, and so he has to go even further. Now, before you become so obsessed with Amnon's sin, and how gross this whole topic is. You have to remember that sin does exactly the same thing to us. This is not a story about one person who was affected by sin in a horrible way. This is a story about mankind because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we are not immune to this same path of destruction of sin. And so I ask what areas of your life started as a temptation and you left them unchecked and now they are sin. What sins in your life that you don't even recognize anymore because you've become convinced that they aren't bad or they're not as bad as Amnon's sin, so I must be okay? Is sin convincing you that it's okay? If someone were to write your story as we see Amnon's story in scripture, where would we gasp? at being disgusted at the reality of what you're comfortable with. But remember, sin is against God, and so the real question is, where is God disgusted? What areas of your life is God against but you're comfortable with? You see, this is what sin does, and you're not exempt. I'm not exempt. And so we must let the Holy Spirit convict us or we're capable of the very same thing that we read about. And you may say, that's not possible. And I say, sin is disgusting and Satan wants to trap you. And so, yes, it is only by the grace of God that any of us are better than what we currently are. That any of us are better, maybe, than this. We are only better because of this, the blood of Jesus applied to our lives. The reality is, is that sin traps us. But before it fully has trapped Amnon, Tamar responds in verse 12. Remember, he's just invited her into his bed. Look at what she says in verses 12 and 13. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Basically, Amnon, don't do what you're desiring to do. Stop 
and recognize all the awful things that this involves and the consequences it brings for both of us, the shame that Tamar is going to feel. But if you were to continue on in verse 14, you would see that sin traps us. He was trapped in his own thinking and he was convinced that the only thing to do was to continue in his sin. It didn't matter that there was a pure, righteous person helping him. It didn't matter that she warned him about righteousness and the result of what's going to take place. He was so trapped down this dark path of sin and convinced that it was okay that what he does next is horrific. He rapes her. Sin had brought him so far down the path that in the face of the warnings and purity and righteousness, he was comfortable with violating his half-sister. He had sinned all the way up to this path. He ignored the warnings and he continued to sin all the way to that point. And while we look at this from an outside view, we see her caring, compassionate heart thinking all she's doing is helping someone in need, exactly what a family is supposed to do. And here he is, in the waiting, seeing what he can get out of it for himself. And not in a pure way of having someone feed him, but he is serving his selfish desires and the beauty that God created in her, the beauty in her heart to give anything that she had to stop her day and say, I'm going to help my brother who is sick. She didn't know how sick he had become, convinced that this was okay. God had created her with pure beauty. And Amnon turned it into an object, expendable, a means to a selfish fleeting feeling. And instead of seeing her through God's eyes and being proud of his sister, a princess with beauty and value and worth, he saw her through his own eyes of desire and he missed the very beauty that God had created. And this is exactly what sin does to us. You see, when we embrace criticism, it doesn't take long for us to be critical in everything. When we embrace discontentment, it doesn't take long before we aren't satisfied in anything. When we embrace sin, no matter how small, we are pulled deeper and we become more and more comfortable with it. And without being interrupted by the power of Jesus Christ, we too are just like Amnon. Our starting point is all the same, separated from God because all have sinned and fall short of his glory. But I want you to notice something. Because while Amnon got what he wanted, we see another terrible reality about sin. Sin doesn't satisfy. In verses 15 and 17, we read this. Then Amnon hated her. With very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love that he had previously. And he said to her, get up, go. 
He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman, no longer my sister, no longer Absalom's sister. He says, get this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. What he does is disgusting. And he follows it up by something so disrespectful that it's just as disgusting because sin has trapped him. It has convinced him that his actions are fine. He doesn't have to worry about anybody else. He doesn't have to think about the consequences because sin tells us that it's all about me and so I want you to serve me. And when we get trapped in that, sin doesn't satisfy, but it's real easy for sin to convince us that we should continue seeking satisfaction. And now we're on this dark path of sin and we're convinced that we're just fine. How quickly this love that was actually an illicit, taboo, violent lust, how quickly this love, as he called it, turned into hatred. And rather than telling his sin to leave and bolting the door after his sin, he told the victim that he just created to leave. He got rid of the innocent instead of the sin. He was convinced that that was the right thing to do. But this isn't all about Amnon's sin because I want you to see that there is pain caused by sin. Tamar is a victim of this violent act and she is broken. Look at verse 16. She said this, no, my brother, for this is wrong in sending me away. It's greater than the other thing that you did to me, but he would not listen. He basic, she basically tells him, sending me away is worse because I'm ruined now. She has now been convinced that she is nothing but a piece of property, something that can be abused and then cast away. That's what sin does. But he doesn't listen. He didn't stop at her earlier warnings and he isn't stopping now because sin blinds us to the reality of its own destruction and it convinces us that covering up or continuing in it is the best course of action. So he kicks her out. And what we see in verses 18 and 19 is her response. She was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her hand on her head and she went away, crying aloud as she went. Do you see the destruction of sin? Verse 20 even tells us how her life continued. We don't hear anything else about her other than verse 20. She lived a desolate woman. And I know this has been heavy because sin is disgusting and it's heavy. There is no refreshment in sin. There is only hope and refreshment in Jesus. But I want you to look at that term desolate. She lived a desolate life and I want you to understand that while the circumstances surrounding this event are horrible and nobody should have to experience what happened to her, that term desolate can be temporary because there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ to take away sin, to take away shame, to give us eternal life with him 
where those feelings that we have in this world, whether we are guilt-ridden with our own sin or whether we are victims of someone else's sin, even if those are overwhelming feelings, we can hope and trust that Jesus Christ stands victorious. And so what we experience now is not eternal if you have Jesus Christ. The hope is in him. So maybe you're a victim here today of something like this sin. And you're wondering what hope or healing can there be? Well, while this world brings pain and misery, there is hope in Jesus. Or maybe you're a sinner and you wonder what hope could there be for you. Maybe you're asking yourself, I'm too far gone. What hope could there be? I am so far worse than even Amnon in my sin. I cannot be reached by the arm of Jesus Christ. I am too far gone. But I want you to know that there is no distance that's too great for Jesus. He can save you. There is no sin that's more powerful than the saving power of Jesus Christ. You see, the reality of sin is exactly what we need to understand in order to put our hope in the correct place. Israel was given a king, King David, a man after God's own heart. They watched his faith as he killed Goliath. They watched him lead a great kingdom, a kingdom for God, but then they watched him fail. And they saw the effects of sin ripple through the family and cause destruction. There were victims left in the wake, feeling at fault, dirty, living desolate, there was rape and murder in the royal family. And outsiders must have looked at themselves and this king and said, is this as good as it can be? God has given us this king and yet we see all of this destruction. And this is exactly what we need to understand. That no, King David wasn't as good as it can be. King Jesus is the best it can be. There is hope outside of mankind and it's God himself. Pastor Derek told us last week, our only hope is not in who we are or what we do. Our only hope is in who God is and what God has done. And who God is, is love. And what God has done is sent his son, Jesus, to take on the punishment for sin so we can have forgiveness and we can have healing. And it's complete forgiveness and it's complete healing Jesus became man and lived perfectly without all the corruption, without the sin, without the fault. Mankind needed someone else and so God sent himself as Jesus. Jesus was morally perfect. Jesus was the one and only one qualified to be king. Jesus was the one able to take the sins of the world and experience the judgment of God and this means that we must look to him. You see, the story continues as you read chapter 13 and 14. Absalom murders Amnon. We might look at this and actually get a little bit excited because, yes, he deserves it and justice is served, but this isn't justice. As good as it may feel to see a criminal pay, this justice is corrupt because there's reason to believe that Absalom was seeking his own motives potentially advancement in the family line of being the next king. While justice is important for us to seek, we can't put our hope into the justice served by man because that justice doesn't heal. Did the murder of Amnon suddenly wipe away every tear from Tamar? Did it heal her brokenness? Did she suddenly forget what happened to her and now she experiences fullness of joy because Absalom murdered Amnon? No. 
But the justice of God does that. The comfort that we look for in excuses, in comparison, in revenge, that comfort is a lie. It doesn't last and it's not even comfort. It's a self-serving and it's worshiping an idol ourselves or we worship an idol called comfort. Instead of any of that, we need to put our trust in Jesus. We need to put our trust in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that satisfies the justice of God for the punishment of our sins. We need to have our eyes set. In the midst of this trouble and this pain in this world, we set our eyes on the promise that one day he will break every chain. One day there will be no shame, no tears, no loneliness. But by turning to Jesus today, that comfort is made available to you. You will know the power of Jesus because you know Jesus. The reality of your trouble has to face the reality of the power of Jesus when you turn to him for salvation. And when you turn to him for salvation, Jesus wins every battle, every time. You can experience that today. So whether you need the power to overcome sin because it's deeply rooted in your life, maybe you identified today with Amnon and you sit here disgusted by your own sin in the reality of the face and the power of God, or maybe you need comfort because of the guilt and the shame that you've experienced because you're a victim of sin like Tamar was. It doesn't matter where you're coming from today, the truth of the matter is, is that you're here and you're hearing about Jesus Christ, the only one who can take away your sins. Billy Graham says this, for the believer, there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus Christ has opened the door to heaven for us by his death and resurrection. Over the last several weeks, as Awana has started, kids are memorizing verses. And so in our house, we have a six-year-old who's memorizing verses. And as I've helped him with these verses, it has been so refreshing to just hear the simplicity of a child stating the truth of God. He learned 1 John 4, 14 that says, the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. What else do we need to know? God sent his son to save the world from this disgusting mess that we saw today. The disgusting mess that we make of our lives. God sent his son. He learned Psalm 147.5 that says this, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. Is there any power that you know that can overcome your sin today? Other than Jesus, no. That abundant power belongs to God and only God. And it's our responsibility to cast away everything else that we seek to solve that problem and embrace the one solution to that problem, Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But the reality is, is that this world has failures, has disappointment, has things that just overwhelm us. And I want you to set your eyes on what God provides 1 Peter 1, 4 through 6 says this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Nothing this world offers is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Yet we pursue it constantly. 
We're on this dark path of sin and we leave temptation left unchecked that turns into sin. And then sin convinces us that's, that it's okay. And then the pain that sin causes, we don't even care anymore because we're so convinced that this is the only path to go. But we need to break free from that bondage and we need to look to God's kingdom, a one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. By whose power? That verse tells us, by God's power. Nothing else can guard your eternity. Nothing else can wash you white as snow from this disgusting sin. It is only by the power of God. It says, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And it even says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Maybe you're grieved here today. Nothing has relieved that grief. But now you know to put your faith in God. The verse continues, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Maybe you find yourself feeling in the fire today. But it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How could I possibly praise right now when I'm caught by this sin? How could I possibly praise when I'm a victim, feeling shame and feeling like I'm just an object cast away? It's found in Jesus Christ. That's how great he is because he overwhelms and takes care of all of it. And I want to end with 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Before I challenge. It says, so we do not lose heart. I know there are many people in here today that have lost heart. You've lost heart in your family. You've lost heart in the church. You've lost heart in many different people. Sin has taken a hold of you and you don't think that there's any hope. But that verse continues. It says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day and the understanding is that it can't be renewed by anything you do. It is only being renewed day by day by Jesus Christ as your savior. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you may think, wow, scripture really minimizes my problem there by calling it light and momentary, that this affliction that I'm going to that has rocked my world, that has beat me down for years, scripture is going to identify that as light in comparison to the power of Jesus Christ. Yes, that is how amazing our savior Jesus is. That is how majestic our God is. That there is nothing that even stands a chance against him. So if you find yourself here this morning overwhelmed by sin, if you find yourself trapped in the bondage of sin and you can't even see a way out, it's because there isn't a way out by your own understanding. It is only by Jesus Christ and his blood applied to your sins. If you find yourself overwhelmed in this light momentary affliction that feels like the weight is all upon you, understand that the weight went on Jesus Christ at the cross. And you can have complete healing and complete comfort today by coming to him as your savior. I want you to take this song that we're going to sing. I want you to focus on the words and I want it to bring you to a point 
of understanding that there is no hope outside of Jesus. Because God did not just withdraw himself from mankind and say, I see that it's hopeless, but it's not my fault. And he is not just watching from a stadium seat high above. He really loves us. God really loves us even if you don't feel loved by anyone in your life. God, the God of the universe, almighty God beyond all comparison and all comprehension loves you and he loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to save you from this mess. And so as you hear the words, God really loves us, as you sing these words, don't sing them unless you know Jesus Christ as your savior. Come to the front. An elder will meet you and you can give your life to Jesus once and for all and understand what forgiveness means, understand what healing means. You can have hope in an eternal glory where there's never pain, there's never victims. Give your life to Jesus today. We're gonna follow up this song with yet another song and I'm gonna come back and challenge you one more time because this is life or death. And you may think that you're living life right now, but if it's without Jesus, it's no life at all. So take this moment to reflect and to pray. Step out of your seat. Come before this altar and give your life to Jesus Christ. And I've got a friend Closer than a brother there is no judgment, oh how he loves me, I've got a friend, and he is my strength, he is my portion, with me in the valley, with me in the fire, with me in the storm. is sufficient so come if you're needing forgiveness or healing his mercy is enough oh and this is our hope the cross it has
you haven't understood the depth at which he loves you. Before we continue, you need to understand that he loved you so, so much that he sent his son to take your sin, to go to the point of death for you so you don't have to experience death. This death that you experience in this body is just one that ushers you straight into the presence of God if you have Jesus Christ as Savior. But if you don't, then death is scary because what comes next is hell. God loves you so much that Jesus is your rescue and he sent him for you. And so maybe you just gave your life to Christ and you're experiencing freedom for the very first time and you're going to proclaim the rest of this song in a brand new way that you've never experienced love before. Maybe you've experienced the love of Jesus Christ before and you're reserved. Something else is on your mind. When confronted with the reality of who God is and that Jesus Christ has saved you from hell, we exclaim with praise and worship of our God. And so your challenge is to come to the altar as a believer and turn over anything that is obstructing your understanding that Jesus Christ saved me and his righteousness is applied to me so that when God sees this flesh he sees Jesus Christ. Would you take this last portion of this song and truly proclaim the love of Jesus Christ? He is.